fairly long story. I was born in Rochdale. I on the, the River Roach, because the Rochdale, a tributary of the Irwell, um, as that a well-known polluted river. Um, I fished as a youngster on mill lodges, catching goldfish that had grown in the warm water of the, of the lodges. And then it was grammar school and no more fishing. Um, and I started work uh, very early at 17, um, run the family business when my father was taken ill and um, it was quite hectic at the time but I moved to a house that was on the top of the roach of the valley of the river roach and uh, it was a beautiful looking river but it was just full of sewage fungus and I always remember going to see a counsellor about this and this was my first escapade into looking at water quality and I said look you know the sewage works just isn't doing its job here and uh, it, it needs a complete upgrade and to stop all this pollution going into the river. And he just turned around to me and he said, hey lad, there's no votes in sewage, end of conversation. And that was the attitude um, of local authorities, many local authorities, when they were in private ownership. It is only really privatisation of water that's allowed us to get on top of that problem. I'm Philip Lord and I'm Chairman of the Trust. A friend of mine persuaded me to start fishing again, perhaps when I was 23 or 4. And I was, they took me out to several rivers and I caught a salmon or two, so that really did it. And, uh, and then uh, a gentleman I'd known for a long time said, I believe you're fishing, Philip. I said, yes. He said, would you like to become a member of the uh, Hodder Fishing Club? And I said, oh yes, please. And the consequence of that is eventually, um, 42 years ago actually, I bought a house in the Harder Valley and come to live here. Now, in fishing this river, I also started to witness other things, particularly at Calder Foot. That's the, the pool where the River Calder meets the Ribble. And there were persistently, in certain conditions, very big fish kills there from pollution. And what it was, it was uh, sewage that built up in the river and then a sudden damp or normally a, a thunderstorm would put up the calder and it would be up before the ribble ever got up and it would just wash out all the sewage straight into the ribble and there there were fish and they all died and it was a, a pretty frequent uh, happening this and it was decimating the river so I, I was then asked to become uh, the secretary of the Ribble Consultative, a body that is still going. And uh, it was that really that fired me into trying to do something about the position of these rivers. And uh, ever since we've been deeply involved in it.
as as a secretary of the uh, consultative, uh, the agency came to me and said, we'd like to talk to you uh, about some possible funding to do some uh, environmental work on the river. So we're obviously interested and a, a small group of us, five of us I think, um, got together with the agency and literally there was a possible five million pounds uh, looking at us. And um, the agency appointed a consultant to actually draw up the documentation and everything. And um, for two years we worked on this. And at the latter time, just before it was submitted, they said, look, we're going to submit it under a name. And we really think, uh, this is the agency speaking, um, that there should be uh, a trust to do this. And uh, we agreed and we saw the solicitors, drew up documentation and formed the trust. And then there's a the question of who would do what? And nobody would stand up <laughs> until the agency said to me, Philip, you're going to have to do it. <laughs> so they're responsible really for me being here. <laughs> they might have regretted it sometimes though. <laughs> We didn't get the grants, no. Uh, it all went to the farmers uh, for doing work on the farms, um, which to some degree or other was a waste of money uh, from as far as the river was concerned. But we, they then looked at us and said, look, um, there's another fund here. Put a bid in for a specific project. And we drew one up uh, to work on Skirden and we got £100,000 out of it. And that was the start of it. Now, we employed nobody. We were all volunteers. And uh, so we started to do the work, either do it ourselves or on many occasions, we'd have to bring in the contractor to do certain types of work. And so that's how it ran. And it went on like that for a few years and we were getting busier and busier, really. Um, Alan Roundtree, our, our treasurer, came in right at the beginning as well. and. Um, Without Alan, uh, it would have been difficult because he kept all the finances very straight and uh, in proper order, which has stood us in good sense over many years. Um, he, from there, we decided we ought to have somebody and we were working with, with one of the funding bodies and uh, there was a man there who I thought could be quite helpful. And he did start with it. He started first of all part-time, then full-time. And then I got involved with the Rivers Trust. Uh, the Rivers Trust is the umbrella body for uh, all river trusts. So there are now 50 odd of them in England and Wales. And the gentleman there said to me, Philip, you're doing fine. He said, but I really think you need the scientists. It was from then on that um, we took the plunge and advertised and the result is um, that Jack Spees came and Jack is still with us and he is now the chief executive of the trust. The river was eroding badly and, uh, and getting wide, this is the Skirden Beck in particular, so uh, we attempted to restrict it to some degree or other. Uh, it was a very good spawning stream for salmon and sea trout. 
um, and it's got two substantial tributaries coming into it. In fact, it's one of the, the bigger small tributaries. And so really we were looking after uh, everything we could in that area, talking to the farmers, and so that was it. And it was a success, but what I didn't realise is the sheer power of, of that stream. Uh, because in practice, some of the revetment work we did on banks and things uh, was swept away in big floods. And uh, we learnt lessons, shall we say, there. And, and it's another reason really for uh, wanting professional staff. The first thing that Jack did was to survey the whole river. And he came up with the astonishing figure of over a thousand obstructions of various sizes and types within the Ribble and its tributaries. And um, these, uh, many of these were stopping migration and therefore the fish weren't spreading out, they weren't going over what was their, should be their natural habitat. Uh, because a lot of these structures date back to the early uh, Industrial Revolution and um, and then some for farming and all really all sorts of reasons but uh, so one of the things we started to remove these and they removed very many of them now but um, we still have some more to go of course <laughs> It then became obvious, when you sort of thought about it, that everything that we were trying to do really came back to people. People had caused the changes in the river. Uh, the population was expanding, the Industrial Revolution grew very fast. And then Victorian eras uh, was tremendously um, important to the economy. Now, an example of this is since then, we have done a major scheme in Burnley. And Burnley, um, the river had been, through the town centre, been completely, two rivers there are there, the Brunnen and the Calder, uh, had been transformed. And what they'd done, they'd made it into a cobbled uh, riverbed, which was two slight sloping cobble sets, um, perhaps five or six feet wide, and just above the natural level. But in the middle was a deep, narrow channel. And the reason for this is that once again, that word sewage, the sewage was being pumped straight into the river, neat. And when the river was spread out on its natural way, it would have slow and fast areas and it was settling out. And in hot weather, the stench was unbearable. So it was the Victorian answer to their problem in Burnley was get this channel and every time there's some wood it'll wash it all off downstream. Lovely for Burnley but nobody else. And uh, it, it again it showed you what happens with priorities with people. Uh, it, was, it was make money, make money, uh, textiles, engineering and, um, and just stick it in the river. The best thing I think that's happened to rivers in this country was Margaret Thatcher's privatisation of water um, because it's, it's allowed the water companies then to uh, make a proper charge for water services and sewage services um, 
and then put capital in, into all the treatment works. They're still doing more, they've still got more to do because it is a massive job. It couldn't be done any other way. Trees, first of all, provide uh, cover over the river. They, they, they lean out over the river and they provide shade. And uh, that helps a lot of wild creatures. I mean, the, the birds love them, obviously, and everything in the river likes them because they can get into a sheltered place, but particularly in summer. The trees in the shade, if you get an avenue of trees on the riverbank and in shade, the water will be three, possibly four degrees cooler than the adjoining water in, in a hot, on a hot day. And temperature controls the amount of oxygen in the water. And, and so if it goes higher, we have less oxygen, and the creatures in the river uh, start to suffer for it and can die. So that, that's really it. I, and it, it, it just helps the whole river corridor uh, to be used by all wildlife. Um, because you've got a mixed environment there, and it's as simple as that, really. We're stood here on the banks of, of the Hodder, and uh, it, one bank is completely treed in, uh, mature, deciduous trees, and the other bank is partly treed, and uh, it's delightful. And it's a habitat that's perfect for all wildlife, really. They, the otters come up here, a lot of bird life, a lot of bird life on the river itself, and of course the fish come as well. And the fish really are our best measurement of how successful the river is. We, if we can track fish, we can check on how successful their spawning has been, and how far they've got, and what areas are the best for them. And um, it's that that keeps the whole river alive. It's the fly life in, in the river is the bottom of the food chain. And it just brings, it shows how important it is. So the consequence of that now, of course, is we're doing a lot more work working with farmers. Now, I've lived in the valley for 42 years. And when we came, uh, the farmer would have a small tractor uh, and that would be it. And uh, uh, he could cut grass and make hay or, and, but now, uh, the size of, of the traffic uh, that the farm, uh, farms use now, it, the scale of it is huge. You know, they can hardly get down the roads uh, when, they're, when they're harvesting. And um, it, there's a whole change gone and the farming has become a, quite a serious business. And it, from small farms, we've now got quite a few large farms from amalgamations. And we're now working with the farmers to see how, how we can reduce um, the amount of feces from the stock coming in and uh, a lot of farmers are very good and help us but um, not all um, but it, it just goes back to what I said earlier it's people everything we think about is people uh, what people do and of course in the news at the moment very much so is this question of plastics and uh, We've been conscious of this on a small scale in the rivers and we've had cleanups on riverbanks when we're taking um, massive amount of rubbish out of the rivers and a lot of that is plastic. I think one of the most important things we're doing now is working with schools and education. Um, I think we find the children 
take the message home and they are I think they like it they feel they feel it's the right thing to be doing and if we can get everybody thinking like that and of course if you watch television recently on plastics you'll see that they've got a campaign going too which is great it's, I think it's one of the best things they've ever done and uh, showing up with the problems and it's on, been on the radio today actually this morning I was listening to it um, and the more people we, we convert uh, to either not using plastics or being careful what they do with it or recycling if it is recyclable there are many many problems it is a huge problem uh, but it's just symptomatic uh, of what people do uh, we have got to live with nature I think been very successful and Jack in particular has been very successful in, in raising a lot good-sized capital for major projects uh, from lottery sometimes from the agency from the water company we, we've had help from a lot of quarters really on that and from other uh, environmental um, charities so it's not like I've run the business all my life and cash flow is how you've got to run the business, you've got to got control of it. And when we're raising money on a voluntary basis, it's not quite the same thing. Industry produces goods, sells something, makes a profit, and, and then reinvests some of that. And we can't make a profit. And so we've got to keep asking and asking for money. And, uh, and it's hard, I think we do better on actual projects, so it'd be removing a huge weir or something, or that sort of thing, uh, and sometimes for planting trees, um, but it doesn't it doesn't look after the ancillary costs of running the trust and things like that. So it is that pressure on the trust continually to have to raise money. Education, for example, we currently got three years funding uh, for our work on education. Now it's absolutely essential. It's essential to the rivers, it's essential to the population, it's essential to wildlife, to keep that going. Now, we can't keep going to the same place and asking for the same amount every two or three years. So we've got to create a method of producing a regular income to pay for our staff uh, that are doing this work uh, with schools. And the schools are readily take you to take what we're offering uh, but they've had their budgets cut so we don't seem to be able to get much out of, of them um, but we, we want to do it and we have to we have to succeed in this the Burnley job I described to you and uh, at the end of that job when we were just opening up the channels after the work had been done, um, the first thing that happened is a sea trout appeared. Now, there haven't been sea trout in Burnley for 150 years. But like all nature, if there's a void and it's suddenly available to them, they come into it. And there's a four pound fish there was actually caught by the contractors, uh, filmed and put back into the river. And then after the next winter, um, our staff were monitoring the, uh, the fry in the river and sure enough we had salmon 
we had salmon had gone above Burnley and successfully spawned and there were young salmon in the river. Now that, again, as I said, it is the fish that measure the river and tell us how good it is. So I, that was a, a real feeling of success. When, when we moved to the valley, um, I still continued to work in Rochelle for the next 25 years and, and drove there every day. Um, but uh, my wife had always been a gardener and uh, we'd, we'd got quite an area of land with this. Uh, well, it was a barn, it's now a house. And um, I became very interested in gardening and particularly aspect of it was trees and large shrubs and uh, I started to collect trees and I can go into the garden now which is now in my daughter's ownership and uh, I can look at trees that I planted 40, 30 and 40 years ago and they're 70 or 80 feet high and they are some of them are trees that are from other climes uh, from South America from the Himalayas and uh, it has a, uh, a lovely sense of peace in the garden with the trees and a small stream running through it in which the sea trout spawn. And I didn't even know that for several years until one day going down the stream, I saw a dead sea trout. Oh, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I now know why the heron comes every autumn into the garden. and. Uh, I should have realized that before. But sea trout come up at night. Uh, it's only a very small beck. You can walk across it in your shoes. And uh, they come up on the flood and they'll spawn that night. But they know if the river's going stale, they actually stay for several days. And then you can find them in daylight. And one day I saw this fish spawning and I rang up a friend of mine, who's also a trustee uh, of the trust. I said, come up here quick. And we lay down and looked, peered over a bank and there was a fish there. And don't forget, this stream is about three foot wide at the most and uh, only a few inches deep. And it was busy digging into the gravel. And it was about six pounds and I'd never seen a fish of this size uh, in such a small stream. But it, it, what it taught me is how far the sea trout will go. It can't go much further than the garden because there's a big waterfall at the top of it. And um, it, it, it's so important to look after every little bit of water. So I got a lot of satisfaction really out of both gardening and seeing that. I would like to see uh, everybody taking care of the whole environment, um, instilling it into, into everybody. But I don't think the world will be the same place without a wild environment somewhere. And we're lucky in this country that we have the possibilities of it with, with our rivers. And um, I, I'd just like to see it as near to nature 
as you could possibly get without the interference of man. And that, I think, would be very satisfying. Uh, unfortunately, I shan't be here in 20 years' time, uh, but perhaps looking down, I might be able to see it.